You're heading south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 99, covering the week of November 27th through December 1st, 2017. Glad to have you back in the program. Glad to be here. Before we get started, all the usual housekeeping. If you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find us on social media on Facebook at Abbeville Institute, on Twitter at Abbeville INST, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page. Just go out and look for Abbeville Institute. If you don't want to go out and search for all those things, you can go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. You can find all of our social media buttons at the top of the page. Also, our Amazon Smile button. If you do shop at Amazon, if you Click on that Amazon Smile button. You'll be contributing to the Abbeville Institute while you shop. Also, if you're at our webpage, you can give us an email address, and we'll give you a free ebook, Kirkpatrick Sales Emancipation Hell. And uh, just for signing up, you'll get our daily dose of Dixie and also our weekly email and any updates that we have about upcoming programs or events. Speaking of upcoming events, we have an event scheduled for the end of February 2018 in Charleston, South Carolina. Information about that is on our website, abbevilleinstitute.org. Go there and check that out. It should be a grand time, and uh, we are taking reservations already. So go out there and make plans to be with us at the end of February. Also, I just want to remind you, if you do like what we do, please support the Abbeville Institute with a tax-deductible donation. Your contributions help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going, help keep our programs up and running. So anything you want to contribute uh, is welcome and appreciated. You can contribute monthly as little as 3 bucks a month or $25 a year if you're a student or $5 a month or $50 a year if you are not a student. So all that information is available on our website as well. Just go to the web page. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says support. Click on that. It'll have a drop down and it'll have memberships for individuals or memberships for businesses or endowment giving. There are several different methods to donate to the Abbeville Institute. So please consider doing that. Uh, we are coming up at the end of the year, so if you are making your tax plans for 2017, you can still get in under that window you have till the end of December. Okay, well, let's talk about uh, the material for this week. We had a lot of interesting material, and um, three of the pieces actually had to do with the war, and then, uh, or at least the causes of the war, and then there were two that were uh, a little bit different. Well, I should say. Uh, four of the pieces really had to do with the cause of the war, and then one was a little different. So um, let's talk about those pieces with the war. And we spent a lot of time, of course, on this podcast and on the website talking about the war, the causes of the war, uh, events in the war. Um, and this, of course, is becoming, I think in some ways, um, <laughs> uh, re- just kind of like a broken record in uh, in uh, modern political discourse because it seems like uh, every so often you have another attack on the South and then uh, we respond. And that's fine. We, we do. I think we do a very good job of this. Uh, and I think that it's something that's um, needed and necessary. But unfortunately, it seems like the other side is continually fighting the, the, the war. Uh, and that 150 years later, the war still, uh, it, it's, it's the most important topic in American politics. Uh, now, some of this has died down a little bit, and uh, maybe it's because uh, we're, we're, there's other things going on now. We've had uh, you know, some holidays and some things. Or maybe it's because the American public is finally getting tired of all the nonsense that has to do with these uh, Confederate memorials and statues and other things. And the, the public is generally against this uh, destruction, wholesale destruction, of Southern memory. But 
Uh, I think that once the spring uh, comes back, once the summer comes back, and people are out milling around again, you know, you find in history that generally all these things happen in the spring and the summer, you're probably going to see renewed attacks on Confederate symbols and monuments. So we're in a little uh, a lull in this particular process, but uh, we did have a couple of weeks ago, of course, the, uh, the General Kelly incident. We've talked about that in the podcast, but uh, we had a piece this week that uh, gave a little different perspective on that it's by Michael Armstrong, and it talks about slavery in the war. And I think he provides some of the nuance that uh, you need to understand when you talk about the idea of slavery and, and what it was and why it was important for the war. It's a nuanced discussion, and uh, he actually provides a very interesting quote by Gary Gallagher. He said he met Gary Gallagher several summers ago at Gettysburg, and Gallagher said this. He said that to not read is very liberating. In fact, you know, ignorance is bliss is essentially what that comment means. And Gary Gallagher wrote a wonderful book on the South entitled The Confederate War, and uh, he was accused of being a neo quote-unquote neo-Confederate for writing this book, but the point of the book was simply to show how dedicated Southerners were to the cause, because oftentimes you see this position that Southerners weren't really dedicated to it, uh, that uh, the, the women, for example, weren't dedicated to the cause. They were out engaging in bread riots and all kinds of things. Uh, of course, there's nothing further from the truth, and, and you can find ample evidence to show that women, in, in fact, were in some ways, much more dedicated than the men at times uh, to the war. Uh, if you look at, for example, uh, the the amount of uh, money in terms of small donations sent to build the CSS Jackson in Columbus, Georgia, it was coming from all over the South, uh, all uh, because they needed they needed revenue to do this, and it was women who were responsible for providing some of this money, and they would send little uh, you know little amounts. Uh, children even were sending. Uh, dollars in to just try to build uh, this this uh, ironclad, this ram, the CSS Jackson. And so women were extremely dedicated. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, but um, I think that's an, an important thing, an important point to make, that oftentimes we have people giving opinions based on sound bites. You know, you have, we're going to run a piece next week uh, where this is going to be... Um, <laughs> where one of our authors is going to get into that. Uh, and it's just, it's it's so di- uh, discouraging uh, because so many people don't really read uh, and look at the at the entire picture. You know, history is complex because people are complex. And so to say there's a simple explanation or one explanation or one cause and one effect uh, is to reduce history to uh, uh, a, a, a simple black and white issue. And it just, sometimes you just can't do that. And I know people would say, well, I mean, the simplest explanation is often the most correct explanation. Uh, But the war is complex. The sectional conflict was complex. And to say that slavery caused the war is to not understand the impact of slavery and why slavery was even an issue in the antebellum period. Now, uh, this piece is not necessarily about that. It, it, It deals with the fact that there are various secession documents. He brings up the fact that, yes, South Carolina did mention slavery in their secession documents, but Virginia only mentioned it once. And so what you have now, and unfortunately what you get out of this, and I think these arguments are making an impact because you'll have people say, well, yeah, okay. So uh, yeah, Virginia didn't secede to defend slavery, neither did uh, North Carolina or or Tennessee, but certainly all the deep Southern states did. So, uh, you know, slavery caused secession and then secession caused the war. And this is, this is essentially the argument. 
Without slavery, there is no secession. Without secession, there is no war. So slavery calls, hence slavery calls the war. That's, that's generally the argument. But you have to understand that uh, it wasn't even a moral defense of slavery. Uh, if you look at these documents, certainly uh, there were times when people were talking about the impact of abolition and what it would have on Southern society. You can see this uh, in speeches that were made or letters that were written. Uh, but uh, one of the common arguments, of course, was the, uh, the North's reluctance to enforce the provisions of the Fugitive Slave Law that was passed in 1850. And so you have these uh, personal liberty laws uh, that, are, that are being used in the North against uh, fugitives. And so uh, some people would say, you know, you have, you have people on the left saying, well, I mean, this proves the South really wasn't dedicated to states' rights, because if they were, they would have supported uh, northern states resisting the fugitive slave law, because this is all about nullification. So the South really wasn't committed to nullification. They were just committed to whatever would suit their interests in terms of, uh, you know, using federal power for or against them. Of course, the argument here, and I think this is an important thing, important distinction to make, uh, when you look at the Southern position on nullification, and you look at the first time it was even discussed, which was 1798, and you look at Jefferson and Madison and what they said about it, of course, what they're looking at is a law, the Sedition Act, which is completely unconstitutional. There's no question about it. It violated the First and Tenth Amendments of the Constitution. And so there's nothing in the Constitution that authorizes the general government to pass a sedition law. So nullification in that particular way was uh, a, a movement to void a clearly unconstitutional law. And then you look at the issue of nullification in 1832. And of course, this is often, I, I was at a, a, a uh, a field trip with my one of my classes the other day, and we were at the uh, at, a, at a museum, and the tour guide said, "Well, what caused the war?" And so students responded, "Well, you I mean it was economics, states' rights, these kind of things." And the guy said, "Well, but what about what about the S word? What about slavery?" He said, "Well, if no slavery, economics, but what is the Southern economy? It's a slave economy, and uh, and uh, states' rights. What are they? What are they? Uh, what are they saying? States' rights need to do protect slavery. So this is kind of how the the, the argument goes. Uh, but when you look at the tariff issue, uh, the two can be separated. I think it's it, the tariff was part of a larger political economic conflict between the North and the South. And I just did my own podcast on this topic the other day, so. Uh, I'm not going to get into it in much more detail here. If you don't want to listen to that, you can go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, and find that. But certainly, uh, slavery was a component of a much larger battle that had, that had been waged between North and South over ideas, and those ideas had to do with political economy. And uh, the tariff was, was part of this Hamiltonian package that Southerners had long opposed. Uh, and so, absolutely, the South was an agricultural section. The North was an industrial section. They did have a dispute over labor and what type of labor was best used uh, for the laboring peoples. Was it a free wage system or a slave slave system? Uh, but to say that uh, you know slavery caused this political economy of the South is to misinterpret the entire political economy of the South. And I think David Hackett Fisher does a wonderful job with that in his book, Albion Seed, talking about how slavery didn't cause Southern culture. Slavery wasn't the root of Southern culture. Uh, Southern culture would have been there without slavery. And certainly, uh, when you look at uh, the development of this agricultural economy, the South could have had a free 
labor agricultural economy and still been opposed to the political economic positions of the North and still been as hostile to Northern expansion when it came to uh, political economy. This is why Southerners and Northerners were battling over the omission of states because more, more Southern states, more slave states, meant a greater strength in terms of defending the Southern political economy. More free states meant greater state strength in defending the Northern political economy. And Northern farmers had gotten on board with the Northeast because uh, they had used the slavery issue as a wedge. Uh, Western farmers were not as interested in the institution of slavery for various reasons. One is because they didn't want, even, they didn't want black Americans living out there. And so uh, this caused the uh, Western farmers to break with their agricultural counterparts in saying, well, I mean, we're, we're, not, we're not for slavery expansion. And not just that, uh, we like federally funded internal improvements. We want, we want roads and canals and these type of things and railroads and so we're going to align ourselves with the North. And what you find is that after the war is over, they realize that they made a mistake. Because if you look at the populist movement, you find that these Western farmers are now saying, wait a second here, this political economy we had gotten, gotten on board with is not a very good thing. So uh, the populist movement is a, is a realization, the Western populist movement is a realization that they had made a mistake in getting on board with this Northern political economic mission. So again, I digress there, but to, to talk about slavery, you have to look at the nuances. He gets into the fact that many Southern uh, soldiers could, could care less about slavery. Uh, they were fighting for their homes, hearth, you know, the hearth and kith and kin, these type of things. Uh, so you have to understand the nuance when you say the war was about slavery. Uh, well, how was it about slavery? And did, it, did that saying the war is about slavery, did the, did the North go to war to end slavery? And that's also what you have to say. If, if the war is about slavery, then the North had to go to war to end slavery, and that's clearly not the case. So this this uh, idea that you know you can reduce this to a simple uh, you know cause and effect is uh, is not something that uh, historians should generally do. Now we can all have our theories. Is one issue more important than others? Uh, is uh, can we use does the evidence support that? Uh, but, um, you know, at the, at the end of the day, history is complex. And so we should, we should explain all of the complexities in it. And unfortunately, most historians nowadays, and particularly when you get into sound bites, they don't. All right. So that said, um, another issue about the cause and effect was this uh, very famous cane fight between uh, Preston Brooks and Charles Summer in 1856. It wasn't really a fight. It was a beatdown by, by, uh, uh, Preston Brooks on Charles Sumner. And and this is often seen, there was actually a book published on, about this not long ago, uh, The Caning, The Assault That Drove America to the Civil War. And this is often seen as a precursor to the violence that would take place in 1860-61. And this particular piece by uh, Michael Martin, I think, does a nice job in explaining that this, that's not really the case. This is a, This is a debate... Uh, over honor and family, and in fact, Sumner had had uh, had made disparaging comments about Brooks's family. Of course, he had, in a speech in in the Crimes Against Kansas speech, uh, he had he had uh, made fun of Pierce Butler of South Carolina. Not only that, um, he he was saying things that were extremely inflammatory. But he also started lisping. Pierce Butler had a lisp from a uh, from a uh, heart condition. And so Sumner, being the jerk that he was, starts lisping through the speech. 
And uh, this, of course, people thought, oh, that's so funny. But Brooks, who was in the House of Representatives, Butler wasn't there to defend himself. If he was, he probably would have shot Sumner. But uh, So Sumner's a coward in that way. But not just that. Brooks, who was in the House of Representatives, his uh, Butler's nephew, heard it and went rushing into the, into the uh, chamber uh, when Sumner was at his desk working and beat him over the head with a cane. Now, this was an event that was widely celebrated in the South. In fact, there's a plaque honoring Preston Brooks at the South Carolina Library on the University of South Carolina campus. And um, Sumner did not return to his seat for a time as a form of protest. And there's a very famous cartoon where Brooks is beating Sumner over the head and Sumner is holding a pen, falling back and, oh, you know, trying to defend himself with a pen. And this was used as propaganda. This is Southern arguments versus, uh, you know, it's clubs versus pens, in other words. Uh, but there was, he, uh, Martin brings up another very famous caning in 1798 between uh, two congressmen from the North, Griswold and Lyon. Uh, and uh, the, the cartoon for that one is not, uh, <laughs> it's not quite as, um, as graphic. I mean, they have these two guys fighting and everyone's kind of laughing in the Congress. Uh, but, uh, you know, Griswold was, uh, was not very well liked. In fact, um, uh, neither was Lyon, uh, but uh, uh, Lyon actually spit on Griswold. But uh, Lyon was actually elected while he was in jail for violating the alien sedition laws. And uh, so actually the sedition law was, was the reason he was in jail. So the people of, um, of New Hampshire, I believe, is where, um, I'm sorry, of, of Vermont, was where uh, Lyon was from. And um, they, they liked Lyon enough to send him to Congress, even though he was in jail. Uh, so this is uh, this is an interesting episode in American history, but this episode is not often portrayed as you know this honor versus uh, you know our clubs versus pens kind of thing. It's just a funny event. Uh, but when you get to Brooks and Sumner, it has much greater meaning. The issue, as as Martin points out, is really one of family. It's it's one of southern a southern position on family and society compared to a northern position. You did not violate the honor of a family in a speech. You just didn't do those things. Those were fighting words, as, as we used to say. That's fighting words to go out and do that. You don't disparage somebody's family and expect to get away with it. Uh, and so, at least in the 19th century South, and in still some, some cases today, you don't, you don't go around talking poorly about someone's family, particularly not to their face, or even in a public setting where there's going to be uh, ridicule levied on someone. So, uh, you you want to uh, you want to be careful of those things, and I guess Sumner did. This is a cultural dispute in many ways. Sumner didn't get that, uh, but in the South, you know, it wasn't just your immediate family, but also your extended family that would uh, fall under this umbrella, and so those people would be protected as well from abuse by a jerk in the Senate, uh, and uh, you know James Byard of of Delaware uh, called Charles Sumner an ass because he was. I mean, this is this is what the the general consensus on Charles Sumner was. He wasn't a very good guy. He was pompous. He was full of himself, and so uh, he thought he could make disparaging comments about Pierce Butler with no repercussions. And of course, you know, the idea is well, I'm in the I'm in the halls of Congress, and so my speech is protected. This is true, but that doesn't mean that if you violate someone's honor, particularly in the 19th century, they weren't going to have some type of reprisal, and so. Uh, Sumner found out the hard way that that was the case. And uh, as has been pointed out, you know, Sumner was out of his seat in terms of you know, protesting, quote-unquote protesting, 
this particular action, but he was able to come back to vote on the tariff, for example. He was able to come back when he needed to. This was symbolic more than anything else. Sumner wasn't hurt to the point he couldn't be in the Senate, uh, but uh, symbolically he didn't take his seat. So this event didn't really cause the war, and it wasn't really an, an example of uh, you know, this dispute over slavery. Uh, it was more about a personal attack that needed to be uh, responded to. Uh, now, in terms of the war itself, so we have a couple of pieces on cause and effect here. Now, uh, in terms of the war itself, we had two little pieces. One was actually um, a, a piece of satire for, for some of it. But uh, the other uh, was a nice review of a book entitled Pickett's Charge, The Last Attack at Gettysburg by Earl Hess. It was published in 2001 by UNC Press. So it's, it's, almost, it's almost 20 years old now, but... Uh, According to uh, John Watley, who wrote the review, it really is the definitive account of this particular attack. And this, and, and he, th- he says the thing that's nice about this particular book is it focuses only on Pickett's Charge. It doesn't focus on the grander picture of Gettysburg itself. And most of the uh, most of the narratives on this particular uh, battle focus on the entire battle and not just the one element. Of Pickett's Charge, and he says, you know, this is a fantastic book that does a very good job in bringing out the narrative of the battle itself. Um, he calls it a, a, a battle book, um, and that's essentially what it is. And and one of the things that I think you get out of the conclusion is that um, even though the people who say that the lost causers have been responsible for disparaging James Longstreet's character, that Longstreet was a better general and did a better job at this. Um, than than, uh, the Southerners would give him credit for because Longstreet, of course, supported uh, the Republican Party after the war. I think think Hess and, by default, Watley do a nice job in showing that, no, I mean, uh, Longstreet made some mistakes here, and he does should shoulder some of the blame, uh, though he does say that, you know, Longstreet advised Lee not to try to attack that position. But Longstreet could have done a better job, and the ultimate conclusion is that if, you know, if, Jackson was still around, maybe Gettysburg would have gone differently. Um, but uh, that said, I think this is a, if you read the review and then uh, the book itself, it is a nice narrative of this particular aspect of the Battle of Gettysburg. And uh, he gets into, you know, Clyde Wilson will tell you that it's really, it really shouldn't be called Pickett's Charge, it's more Pettigrew's Charge. Um, and uh, Pettigrew and the North Carolina men who were involved in this, who faced terrible casualties as a result of this particular assault. Um, Pickett gets all the, the, the name for it, but it really was more Pettigrew's charge than Pickett's charge. And um, I think that uh, if you ever read uh, Clyde Wilson's Carolina Cavalier, um, you'll get a nice uh, discussion of this particular episode as well. But uh, I think it's a worthwhile book to put into your into your library if you're interested in the war and and the military aspects of the war, not just the political and economic uh, causes of the war or uh, the political conflict. A lot of us get involved in that. Uh, but if you are interested in the valor and honor of these men, and the in the and as he says, as as Watley says at the end, you know, Union men would admire Southerners for their for their uh, courage in this particular battle long after it was over. Uh, it wasn't, they recognized what was going on here. Um, and so it's it's amazing. That is one aspect of this. You know, if, if Union and, and Confederate soldiers were willing to shake hands when the war was over, and they were willing to recognize the honor and sacrifice both sides had made, they were both considered to be Americans. 
where is the malfunction today? And of course, uh, this is the David Blight school and other things that, well, I mean, these reconciliationists, this is bad. Reconciliation was bad. We didn't need to reconcile. The South needed to be destroyed. Southerners essentially needed to be destroyed. They needed to be wiped off the face of the planet. And you just had a, the other day a, uh, a tweet from uh, a race class gender professor saying that, uh, you know, that, look, uh, anyone who, um, who, any white Southerner who, who votes for, for Roy Moore essentially should be exterminated. Uh, and um, it's, it's, this is what people think. And he says, look, we should have done this in Alabama 150 years ago. Should have exterminated. We should boycott Alabama, except for, uh, you know, the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham. We should just boycott the entire state. Uh, and and this, is, this is what you get. These people really, really are, are vicious. They're vindictive. Uh, and so um, they, they firmly believe that the South should have been, uh, there should have been a revolution. This is the Eric Foner school, essentially. There should have been a revolution there. And uh, people should have been exterminated. Um, so it's the radical position, which most Americans did not support. Even those that fought in the war, that had, people, that had Southerners shooting at them, they didn't support this position. Now, there were some that did, of course, but the majority did not. So um, it's amazing how you get that. And, of course, on that particular topic, extermination, we have the piece that ran on Friday. Uh, it's, a, it's a piece of satire. The, the, uh, it's about the University of Kansas uh, uniforms for the football team. They had changed it. Of course, anyone who knows, the, the uh, Kansas uh, University is the Jayhawks. And, of course, the Jayhawks were violent thugs. Uh, and so he has a very nice, the, the uh, piece is written by Louis Lieberman, and he has a very nice uh, cartoon. He's a, he's, a, he's a graphic artist, and he has this little depiction of the Kansas Jayhawks, a proud beginning where you have a, a, a Jayhawker uh, killing a Southern farmer. And at the end of the piece of this work of satire, he makes fun of these new uniforms, but he talks about the real Jayhawks and what they did uh, and how they killed indiscriminately, and uh, kids as well, and just move through parts of Missouri and uh, <laughs> and just killed Southerners. Uh, and this was, this was a true bushwhacking operation, which is why there were people in Missouri who were willing to take up uh, arms against these uh, Jayhawkers. So to have a, an entire school named after vicious criminals and thugs is amazing. And, and, and nobody realizes this. I mean, this is not a badge of honor to say you're a jayhawker. Uh, that means you support violent criminals and thugs. But of course, that's not the way it's often portrayed. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's amazing that we have here in the, in the, even in the 21st century, how, you know, if you had, a, if your mascot is the rebel, well, you have to get rid of that, but you can have a jayhawker. Uh, we should get rid of these people. We should get rid of these of this mascot and call it something else. But uh, of course, Kansas uh, isn't going to do that um, because those were the guys on the right side, supposedly. Even though they would say things like "damn the Constitution," even though they would kill kids, but they were on the right side. And so that's that's the interesting part of this, and I think that um, part of this nuance again that's often missed with the war. Uh, how how vicious the one side was, and you had episodes like this that are completely overlooked. Uh, and of course, you know we have an entire university's uh, mascot dedicated to these criminals. And finally, uh, on Thursday, we ran a piece entitled "No Other Gods Before Me," 
And this is an actually interesting piece. It's written by Jerry Salyer. And it's an interesting piece in that it combines a tourist attraction with Southern literature. And I think that's, and it's about culture. He talks about the, the um, and in Northern Kentucky, you have a, a tourist attraction called the Ark Encounter, where they, where they built an ark. And um, the idea is to explain this part of the Old Testament with a physical ark and, ex- and showing, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a biblical tourist attraction. And the, the point that he makes about this, and, he, you know, he toured this thing and he said, you know, the point that he made is how this could actually, the reason this thing can be successful in northern Kentucky or successful in Kentucky is because Southerners understood the meaning of the Old Testament because of their culture. Um, he says, quote, without not knowing their scripture, for instance, Kentuckians would surely have a hard time making heads or tails of flood, the tantalizing unfinished work of internationally celebrated Kentucky native Elizabeth Maddox Roberts. So they have to understand their Old Testament to understand Southern literature. You have to understand Southern culture to understand someone like Flannery O'Connor, and of course her religious imagery as well. This is very important. To understand um, a Southern culture is to understand the Christian underpinnings of much of it. Uh, and so that's why I like this piece, because it combines, very nicely combines, um, this, uh, this influence of religion and literature, and then now in a tourist attraction. Uh, And so, you know, the South, the Bible Belt, is often called the Bible Belt, but uh, that filters out into so many different ways. I think this is one thing you just, people don't get, or at least they poke fun at now, uh, about the South, and they think this is the South is just this backwards area. I'm sure that a lot of Northern, why would they build an ark in in Kentucky? Well, this just shows Southerners are just a bunch of backwoods, backwards people. Um, But of course, it's that attachment to the Old Testament, to Christianity in general, that makes something like this this, uh, this tourist attraction possible. And also it makes Southern literature as rich as it is. And so I like this particular piece because of that, because he does a nice job connecting those two things together. And uh, it's well worth your time to read it. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed this this episode of the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Until next time, Good day.